0: A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i Faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's b-a-h-a-i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Nina Gordon. Nina grew up in the South, and when a young woman at the time of World War II, she was very angry on how African Americans were treated, so she left the South for California. She tells a funny story on how she manipulated her husband into going back into the service so that she could find what she was looking for. You'll have to listen to the interview to understand what I'm talking about. It was when they were in Guam that Nina ran into the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Nina where she grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: I grew up in uh, Winder, Georgia, a small town about midway between Atlanta and Athens, Georgia. Yeah, I grew up on a farm. which was wonderful. I the 11th of 12 children. My parents believed in education, so it was never, if you go to school, college, it's when you go to college. So we all knew that we were going to college and get an education.
0: What was it like growing up on the farm?
1: We grew great big watermelons and a big garden. There was a big rock out in the uh, Mulberry River and we would go on that rock and dive into the water and it was muddy and... (laughs) But we used to catch great big catfish there as well as swim. It was wonderful.
0: And uh, what was school like?
1: School was fine. It was not nearly as progressive for us as it was for my children and grandchildren. We didn't have a lot of uh, electronic stuff. I remember my brother made our first radio in a cigar box. We just didn't have a lot of distractions that they have today.
0: And what were your interests growing up?
1: Oh, my interests were animals. They still are. I learned to milk on, a, on the family pet cow. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> if I wasn't doing it very well, she'd turn around and look at me and moo. <laughs> it was a wonderful life for a child.
0: And what happened after high school?
1: Well, I went into Atlanta and got a job at a defense plant out of Marietta, Georgia, and worked on the flight test division doing calibration on uh, the V-29, which I thought was the biggest plane I had ever seen in my life, and it just was not going to fly. Then I married a sailor who flew the Super Connie which was twice bigger than the uh, B-29.
0: I'm not familiar with the Super Connie. What is that?
1: Well, it was a plane that my husband used to fly into the eyes of the typhoons. His degree was meteorology, and so he would send out information to research centers and send out information to all the, the fleets throughout the world about how um, strong the typhoon would be and where it would be heading and whatnot. Then later, after he died, and I sent for his personnel records and whatnot, I found out that he had about 15 rather high medals from the Vietnam area that I didn't know anything about while we were married because it was so hush-hush that he didn't even wear his medals.
0: Now you said you went to Marietta, Georgia or I guess you started with at Atlanta and then you mo- worked at this defense contractor in Marietta, Georgia. How far away was this from the farm that you grew up?
2: Oh,
1: probably 60-70 miles. I went to a junior college first and then the war broke out and I went into Atlanta and lived in a boarding house and got a job working at the Bell Aircraft Corporation, which was in Marietta, Georgia. So I would ride with someone every day to work from Atlanta to Marietta, which was about 40 minutes from where I was living.
0: Now, why did you leave the community college?
1: The war broke out, and all the boys went off to war, and I said, I'm not going to school where there are no boys. (laughs) I'm not an idiot. (laughs) So uh, I, I finally went back and got my degree.
0: <laughs> so your prime motivator to going to community college was to be with the boys?
1: Yeah, to have yeah. fun, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh,
0: so how long did you work with the uh, defense contractor?
1: Oh, I think probably four or five years.
0: Until the war was until over?
1: the war. Uh-huh. I started working almost immediately after the war broke out. Mm-hmm. I went to... The Worked with the Bell Aircraft, and I worked with them all through the war.
0: Did you meet your husband while you were working?
1: Well, I had left the South because I did not like the way the black people were treated. I was very angry, and so I went to Monterey, California.
0: Nina, was this before or after you went back to college?
1: It was before.
0: So you were working at the time, and you were upset with the way African Americans were being treated in the South, so you you up and left.
1: I just up and left. I was not going to live in such a place where people were judged by the color of their skin, and I went to Monterey, California.
0: Did you notice this when you were growing up on the farm? When did you become aware of this double standard on how folks are treated down in the South?
1: Well, I suppose I knew it. When you're in the middle of it, you know it. But my maiden name was Jackson, and we were a a loving family. And so I couldn't understand why everybody wasn't loving to everybody. And I, I grew up very much like that, and I left and went to Monterey, California. My sister had married a football player from the University of Georgia, and he joined the Marine Corps. He was playing football for the Green Bay Packers. And so she went to California. Well, she went to San Diego first, and then he shipped out from San Diego and was eventually killed on Iwo Jima. Uh, She went to Monterey, and she called me and asked me if I would not like to come out to Monterey because there was a job there. And so I went out and fell in love with the West and discovered that the um, Mexican people were treated as bad and the Indians were treated as bad as the blacks. So I was just really angry at the world, and then I became a Baha'i.
0: Well, how did that transition happen?
1: Well, I gave birth to my daughter.
0: So tell me how you met your husband.
1: At the Naval Postgraduate School, where he was getting his degree in meteorology. And I was working there.
0: You got married and started a family.
1: Yes, uh uh-huh. When my daughter was born, I had grown up as a Southern Baptist. When they put her on my stomach and I took one look at her, I said to myself, You're a God of love. You're not that vengeful God that I grew up with as a child. And I give you my word, I will not leave a stone unturned until I find a better way for my children to know you and to worship you than I grew up with. And then 18 months later, I had a son. And nobody told me how much work a child was. And so we were stationed in Lakehurst, New Jersey. And they had a lovely little chapel there.
0: How did you end up in New Jersey, Nina?
1: my husband was principal of a parachute school in the navy so we were stationed there and it was a lovely little chapel so when the children got big enough for me to start going to sunday school then i put them in sunday school there and forgot all about my promise one night about three o'clock in the morning I heard a voice say, you made me a promise, and you're not keeping it. (laughs) And I sat up in bed and screamed, I didn't know you were listening.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you remember what that promise
1: was. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so I said, if you're keeping tabs on me, you know that I've been pretty busy with these two children of mine. But then I decided, okay, I better start keeping my promise. But I went to all of the uh, Christian sects because everybody knew that all these other religions were false. <laughs> so I didn't go to any of them. Right. And I started through the uh, Christian sects and I found that most of them were just about the same. And I was just frustrated no end because I was not finding within Christianity that love that I had experienced when I gave birth to my children. And so I was living in Davis, California.
0: Now, how come you ended up back in California again?
1: My husband was sent there to get a teaching credential because he had decided that he wanted to retire And he wanted to teach school so that he would have the times off when our children were off from school so we could be a happy, loving family together. And so he had retired, and he was going to the University of California at Davis, and I was working there for uh, Dean Pritchard in the School of Veterinary Medicine, and I was Standing on my front driveway one day, looking at the sunset, it was just beautiful. And I felt very close to God and I heard him say, tell your husband to go back into the Navy. He's needed and you'll find what you're looking for. It was as clear as a bell and I thought, gosh, how am I going to do that? He's so happy getting his teaching credentials and he loves teaching what am i going to do so the um, people were coming out of the service at that time were being greeted as murderers and whatnot and it was such an unhappy time
0: this is during the vietnam war
1: yes and so i called the navy and i said my husband is a pilot of the uh, Super Connie. Do you all need him? And I thought the man was going to jump through the, the phone. He said, good heavens, we have been praying for someone. Everybody that comes into the Navy these days wants to go into jets. If we don't get another pilot, we're going to have to close down this very important squadron because we need another pilot keep the squadron going and I said well don't tell him I called will you call him tonight and ask him to go back in the Navy and he said oh he'd be happy to (laughs) so he did and Don said just a minute (laughs) and he said honey they want me to go back into the Navy and I said well you know I understand that once in the Navy you're always in the Navy If they can call you back if they need you, do they need you? And he said, yes, they'll have to uh, close down a squadron if I don't go back. So he got orders, and we went to Guam. (laughs) And while we were in Guam, Ohio State was starting a University of Guam. They were putting up Quonset Huts first, and then several years later built the university. But uh, I went to work there, enjoyed it very much, and joined a group.
0: We would leave
1: the children with the husbands on Saturday morning, and we would all go out and meet in somebody's house and sit on the beach and sketch and lay on our backs and just rest and watch the ocean. It was just wonderful, and there were quite a few of us, and one of them was a Baha'i. And I started teaching the uh, adult Sunday school at the Lutheran Center because I didn't know where else to go. And we were invited down for brunch at Cynthia and Ole Olsen's house. The Friday night before this Sunday morning, I had come in from the commissary, and it was payday, and the lines were very long. It was Friday. And the lines were very long, and so I never would let the children come home without my being there. They were so full of excitement to tell me what they had done at school that day. But the line was too long, and I got home, and they had come in, turned the radio on or the TV on, loud as they could, gone out in the back to play, and I came rushing in to shut the... TV down so the neighbors would not be run out, and my friend Oli was talking on TV, and he had helped build the TV station, and so he had free time anytime he wanted. And so he said, those of you who are interested in the Baha'i Faith, come to our house Friday night, and uh, we'll give you a fireside.
0: Now did you and know he, what a fireside was?
1: No. Had no idea. But I was intrigued because I thought, What in the world is is he connected with it? and because we were very conscious of Russia and trying to invade us and this and that and the other we were concerned. And so we were invited down that Sunday morning and I said only, wasn't that your ugly puss I saw on TV Friday night? What were you talking about? And he looked at me real surprised because we had been to their house many times. But it was in the days where you didn't talk about it until you became good friends of theirs if it took two or three years. And so he said, the Baha'i faith, hey, have you ever heard of that? And I said, no. And he said, well, you and Don stay after... We finish the breakfast, and I'll give you a fireside. And I said, you mean like Roosevelt used to give? He said, no, he stole that term from us. (laughs) Yes, he did. Anyway, I heard about the Baha'i faith. I was really bothered by a couple of the, the religions because they told me all the religions that we had had in the past. We'd heard such terrible things about The Muslims that I wasn't sure, and then I read where Baha'u'llah said that Muhammad had brought such a loving religion and that it had been changed a lot, and that he was very sad about that and about the changes that they had made. And so I began to study the Muslim religion, too. And I discovered that all of the religions had come from the same God, which is exactly what I had been looking for. And that Adam and Eve had been teaching mankind when mankind was at a three-year-old level. And the only thing that you can teach a three-year-old is obedience to God. And that if you disobey You're going to get put out of your comfort zone. And I said, that's the reason that Christ could say, I'm the first Adam, and I'm the last, I'll be the last Adam. And I said, well, we have to take a different look at Adam and Eve. They're not sinners, they are manifestations of God. My goodness, it was such a big awakening for me. And then the more I studied, the better it became. So I eventually became a Baha'i. That was 1969, and I've been a Baha'i ever since, and I've never been so happy as I have been. And I told Oli and Cynthia, you kept that for me for over a year, when it was what I was looking for. Boy, I'm not going to keep it shut up to myself. And so I became a travel teacher, an international travel teacher, and there were several years in which I flew with K-Class, which meant that I had flown more than 100,000 miles in that year, so I got a lot of free first class. I always paid for the cheapest that I could get because I had so much work to do. And then they would say, we need your seat. Can you sit up in the first class? And so (laughs) (laughs) it turned out that Baha'u'llah made it very comfortable for me (laughs) a lot of times to uh, travel as I did.
0: Where does your husband fall in all of this?
1: Well, he became a Baha'i, but he... Uh, was not interested in traveling because he had traveled so much in the Navy that he was very content. We bought a home in Monterey, California. Our home was on an irrigation creek, and he built a deck over the creek, and we put a fence around it. And I would come home, and I brought home a lot of uh, hammocks from Venezuela. They were so beautiful, and he'd put those hammocks up, and there were a lot of blackberry bushes around. So I would come home so tired that I would just stay in the hammock, and he wouldn't let anybody know I was there until I could get to the point where I could talk without chattering.
0: Nina, what was the first place you went to to teach the Baha'i faith?
1: Probably Venezuela. Venezuela. I did a lot of work in in Central and South America.
0: Now, did you know any Spanish?
1: Well, we had lived in Spain, and I had studied it under the University of uh, Maryland. They had a branch for the service people in Rotor, Spain. They had hired a Spaniard to give us classes. Our uh, pronunciation was great. And then... When I got back to Davis, California, and uh, my husband was teaching, and I began to lose my Spanish because there wasn't anybody there to talk Spanish with. But when I started teaching again in the sea of teaching the faith, then it began to come back to me. I was all over Central and South America first, and then all over Europe and Russia Etc. I went to Chile, and I guess I must have been there probably a half a dozen times. And they sent me to Temuco, where I was to go teaching up in the mountains with the natives, the Indians. And so when I left there, this lady said to me, now when you get to this town where you're going, there's a lady there who's Four girls are Baha'is. She said that she was born a Catholic, she was going to be buried a Catholic, and she wished people would not bother her about becoming a Baha'i. She would never be a Baha'i. So they said, it seems to the American sick when they come down here, sort of want to take her on as a challenge. And I said, oh, but Baha'u'llah said if you don't have a listening ear, don't. Talk about it. Talk about anything else. And so when I got up there and they let me off at her house, her girls were out in the fields working, and she was sitting on a a veranda. I think she probably had the biggest house in that village because she was the only one that had a veranda. And so I walked up and she was sitting... You've seen these great big fan-looking white long chairs with great big fat arms on them. Mm. They're so uncomfortable. We have them in the south on the lawns a lot. lot. And she was sitting on one, and there was another one there. And she said, I introduced myself. I said, my name is Nina Gordon, and I am a member of the Baha'i Faith, and I've come to visit your girls. And she said, well, they're in the fields, but they'll be home in about 45 minutes. Why don't you come on up and sit down? And so I asked her all kinds of questions about her farm and told her that I was a farm girl and that we'd had all kinds of animals growing up. I'd learned to milk a cow and et cetera. I talked about everything except the Baha'i faith, didn't mention it to her. And I told her that I had had a Rhode Island red hen as a pet and that she gave lots of eggs and had lots of little chicks for my mother. And about this time, an old Rhode Island red chicken came running from the back of the house up on the the porch and jumped up on the arm. Cackling up a storm, and the, lo- the lady looked at that chicken and she had a, a a hat in her hand and she swatted the old chicken off the porch and it ran around for a little bit, cackling real loud, and it came back, back up on the porch and back up on the arm of, the, of my chair and nestled down, and the lady picked it up and opened the door, off the the veranda that we was that we were sitting on, and threw it in there because she was drying long ears of corn. I've never seen such long ears of corn in my life. And that old chicken just raised holy heck. And I said to her, you know, I think that chicken knows that I had a pet chicken when I was growing up, and we can't talk over this noise. Don't worry about the chicken. Let it alone. She opened the door, the chicken came out, hopped up on my chair again and nestled down there and went to sleep. And the lady looked at me and she said, Oh, my God, lady, you must be full of the Holy Spirit today. She said, I think that chicken was sent to you by God. For me to decide that it's time maybe I'd stop being so stubborn and make up my mind and become a Baha'i like the girls are. And I looked at her in such so surprise that had not dawned on me. <laughs> and I began to tell her some of the things that we were requested to do as Baha'is, and her girls came in and I Looked at them and I laughed and I said, Would you like to see the newest member of your community? And they looked at me puzzled and I handed them her declaration card. She looked at it, her mouth fell open. How did you do that? I didn't. The chicken did it.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fun is, she became a very strong member of the uh, Baha'i community. And we had a young man who had come down to Chile, and he was first chair with a violin with the Symphony Orchestra out of Seattle washington and He came down, took a, a three months leave of absence from orchestra, and they sent him up, and I said to him West do you know how to play turkey in the straw? And she'll be coming around the mountains, and he said, oh, can you hum it for me? And so I did, and he began to play, and it was we were still in that village, and he began to play turkey in the straw, and she'll be coming around the mountains, and people came running from... Out of every house in that village, we had, I bet, a hundred people running up to see where this music was from. And we had the, the stomping best time you've ever seen. And then I gave a fireside. And so I just had some wonderful, wonderful experiences. But, you know, what I did, the first thing... When I would start to teach anywhere, I would say to Abdu'l-Bahá, who is the son of Baha'u'llah, and one that we look up to greatly because he was such an influence in the face, and I would whisper to Abdu'l-Bahá, Now, Abdu'l-Bahá, get me out of the way. I can botch it up, but if you'll just use me as a hollow reed." through which the piss of self has been blown, then you can do what you want to. And with that, many times I would give a fireside and not know what I had said. So I've had wonderful, wonderful experiences all over the world. I know in Venezuela that I must have been there a dozen times And there was a lovely, lovely, lovely black Panamanian, and she and I used to work together all the time. And the first time I went to Venezuela, Dr. Weldon Woodard was the uh, chairman of the National Spiritual Assembly of Venezuela. He met my plane, and he said, I'm going to take you to my house, my wife is is a nurse, and she's studying to be a doctor now. And I don't get a chance to meet people coming in, but he said, I just decided I wanted to go and meet you and bring you back, and you're going to my house and have dinner tonight, and then we'll take you down to the uh, center where you will be headquartered while you're here. And so I said, Dr. Woodard, how are you doing on your whatever plan it was for that year. And he dropped his head that I've never seen such a sad look on
2: anybody's
1: face. And he said, well, we lost assemblies this last year and we have about 30 that we have to make this year if we are to make our goal. And I was counting. It was in September. And I said to him, Oh, well, we've got time. And he looked at me and he said, Time? And he turned his face, and I've never seen such sarcasm. He said, What do you mean, time? The first person that we taught was the lady who was an English teacher in Venezuela and this small town. And she said to me, Mrs. Nina, I want you to know that I don't approve of you being here, but I'm the assistant to the auxiliary board member. And he said, if I didn't take you and give you a place to stay and use your car to get out to the villages, he'd fire me. And she said, I don't want to get fired, so you're going to be Stay with me, but you're going to buy all of us food. I'm not going to feed you. (laughs) And I said, fair enough. And when we left there, it's just absolutely amazing You ask Abdu'l-Bahá to do something, and he does it. And I said, Abdu'l-Bahá, please show this lady, because if she's not shown, she's going to be fighting us all the time. And on Saturday, she'd say, I'm going out teaching with you. And I said, are you sure? Because when you're out in the teaching field, there is no disunity. If there is disunity, then you don't get anywhere. And we would go out, and I would say, have you heard of Baha'u'llah? And they would look at me and say, "What in the world is this Gringa doing here? What she's trying, this old North American, trying to sell me?" And they'd say, "No," and I would say, "Do you mind if we come in and tell you a little bit about it? Have you heard of the Baha'i Faith?" "No, never heard of it." And so we would go in and sit down, and then you, I could tell the minute somebody knew that this was the truth. It showed in their eyes. And my heart would just flip. It was just wonderful to teach. So I would start it, and then she would hop in and take over. And then I would start feeling angry, and then I would have to start praying like that. So the first weekend we did that, I said to her, Magali, it's Sunday, let's go to the beach. Oh, that's a great idea. She said, I'll go round up the others, because she was driving her car. And uh, I'm standing out in the middle of the, of the street trying to get a tan so that I don't look so darn white. <laughs> and this, I heard this voice say, lady, what are you doing standing out there in the sun? And I look. And on a porch, a small porch, there were three women and three very drunk men. <laughs> and I said, I'm just trying to decide if there's somebody here that will let me tell them who Baha'u'llah is. Come on, Senora. <laughs> and so I went up, and when we got back, she saw me teaching these drunks. Dr. Maharaja had just drilled it into our heads that we're not to be prejudiced. And he would say, Nina, if somebody's coming towards you and they're drunk, are you going to teach them the face? No, they're drunk. You're prejudiced. If you teach them the faith, it will sober them up, and they will be good citizens afterwards because they'll have guidance from God. And Magali had picked the others up. And she was furious. But I just ignored it, and we went to the beach and had a great time. The next day, the headman of this village came knocking on Magali's door and said, You know, we had come to the conclusion before Mrs. Nina came that we needed to do something to help the children in our village advance and to do something for the women. Because we men were always getting drunk and going off on Saturday nights and leaving the wives and whatnot, and we realized that was not right. And when Mrs. Nina came and told us about the faith, we want you to start a woman's club in our village. Magali's mouth, was just wide open. And he said, You know, I made that lady a promise. You'll never see me drunk like this again. And all three of the drunks made the same promise. And the dolly said, Now, this was six months later when I went back. My dolly said, Mrs. Niner, they haven't had a drop of liquor since. And she said, That is the most active new believers that I have ever run into in my life.
0: Now, Nina, when was it that you stopped traveling?
1: When I got the strokes in the brain, and I missed my plane in San Francisco. Fortunately, my nephew was working for United at that time, and he said, Aunt Nina, don't worry about it. You've given us enough time in the air that I think we can put you up in a hotel tonight, and then I'll get you on the plane tomorrow. And so I called my family and told them I'd be coming in late. And I thought, you know, if I hadn't been in San Francisco when I missed my flight, I would have been panicky. And so I pretty much stopped my long-distance travel.
0: Now, how long ago was that?
1: I think it was about ten years ago, we were in Russia. It was very interesting there because it was an agnostic country. They didn't believe in God. And so no one was taught about God. And so we went to our hotel, and you turned in your passport at the hotel because there was a lot of thievery going on. We had a big ballroom in which we would advertise about the Baha'i faith, and we would have a fireside there. Fireside, by the way, comes from the fact that in the early days in Iran, where the faith was born, Mohammed had said, when the Qayyem comes, you must all turn over your power, and your money and whatnot to help the Khayyam get this new faith going. Persia at that time was probably the most corrupt country in the world. They didn't want to give up their money. And they didn't want to give up their power and the gifts they received from those that were under them, etc. And so when the kaim came and announced who he was, Mohammed had said he will be killed by a regiment of Muslim soldiers. And so they said, we'll get around that. The only way we're going to stop this talk of everybody being just is to get rid of him. We must get rid of him. And there's a a regiment of Christian soldiers headed by a Christian man named Sam Khan, and will order his regiment to come in and to kill the Bab, who was, in fact, the Cayam. And the Bab is an Arabic word that means the gate or the door. And you'll find in the Old Testament, I believe one place in Psalms, and I forget, there's it's two places in the Old Testament, where it says the lightning will strike twice. And I've forgotten the wording of the second one, but it indicates that this revelation is so great that it would take a manifestation of God
2: to introduce
1: the manifestation of God who brings us the laws for the kingdom of God on earth. And so he's brought Sam Kahn in, and Captain Kahn requested to see the Bob, And he said, I don't want to be another Judas. If you're who you claim you are, I don't want to kill you. And the Bob smiled and kissed him on both cheeks and said, If you're sincere, carry your orders out to the letter. And surely... God can relieve you of your perplexity. And the mountain fell off of Khan's shoulders. He became very happy, and he went out. And when they called for him to martyr Bob, the Bob said, I'm not finished giving my instructions to my secretary. He was telling the secretary to deny his face, so they would not kill him and to take his signet ring and the bayan, the holy books that every manifestation must write, and to give them to Baha'u'llah, and to give them an an eyewitness. So when Sam Khan ordered his regiment, 750 soldiers, guns were pointed in his direction, he and a young man who had requested to be martyred with him, were tied up against a brick wall, and 750 hollies were shot in that direction. And, of course, there was, those days, huge amount of smoke. When the smoke cleared, the bob was nowhere to be found, and the young man that was to be martyred with him was standing there. And Sam Kahn realized that he had participated in a miracle, And he said, I give up my commission. I will never kill another soul as long as I live. And his regiment fled. And the uh, governor was so angry that he called, forgetting what the prophecy had meant, he called a regiment of Muslim soldiers who came in and they martyred Zabab and the young man that regiment was sent into war and half of them was sent to one place and half another place. And one half fled and was all shot in the back because they were fleeing from the war that they were engaged in. Deserters. Yes. The other was bivouacked next to a wall, and that wall had an earthquake and opened up and swallowed them all. They still uh, did not recognize what they had done. They're still persecuting them today. I understand that several families have been arrested now in um, Iran, and they're keeping our children from being taught there. So the best thing you all can do is to say prayers for them and to write your congressmen and tell them to please have our State Department do what it can to keep these innocent people who are being accused of everything in the world except... What they are. Beautiful, kind, loving, God loving people. I guess I was gonna tell you a story and I got waylaid about <laughs> Russia.
0: <laughs> well why don't you go ahead why don't you go ahead and tell me that story about Russia?
1: Okay. We would hold a fireside, advertise it in all the newspapers around that city. We'd tell them to come, and then I would give the fireside. And then those who were interested, then we would send them up to the third floor, to another big room up there, to teach them the laws that uh, we're not to steal and we're not to... The first law that the Bob gave was you are not to tell a lie. And a friend of mine's father was sent to visit Baha'u'llah and take him letters. And he said, how am I going to get around? If I tell them the guards at the gate of Turkey, they're going to uh, take all the letters. But the Bab said, we can't lie. And so I digress again. When he got up there, this old man, his, uh, Mr. Toronto's father, was a very old, old man, and he said to the gate, old man, what do you want to go through Turkey for? And he said, listen, hear that nightingale? Did that nightingale follow me all the way from Tehran to here? oh, man, why do you want to leave and go to through Turkey? Is that the same sun that was over Tehran? Is it following me, too? And then this went on for about ten minutes. And someone said, oh, let the old man go through. He's nuttier than a fruitcake. He can't hurt anybody. <laughs> so man, let him go. But when I went to Russia, and we were teaching, it was so odd because they would say, Mrs. Naina, what do you mean by prayer? So we would regroup as Baha'is and try to convey what prayer is. It was like beginning all over again. The Russian people had no knowledge of God, no knowledge of the virtues. One Jewish girl said to me that her husband had a little piece of property going down to the railroad tracks. And so he would cultivate that and grow vegetables and take them down to the market and sell them. And that was their way of making a little bit of money his neighbor came to him one day and said my little girl has to have an operation if she doesn't have this operation she will die and i don't have the money but i know that you've been selling vegetables and putting it in the bank can you lend me some money and the Jewish man said, of course, and he loaned him enough money to have the child get an operation. I thought Russia, in Russia all of the medicine was and operations and things of that kind was free. Not on your life, it wasn't. And so he loaned him the majority of the money that he had in the bank. They had the operation. And the little girl began to get better and better and better. The neighbor never mentioned paying him back. So he went to him one day and he said, Don't you think that it's time that you set up a plan to try to pay me back? And he said, Oh, yes, yes, you're right. And so the next week her husband was arrested by the KBD he had called them and told them that he was a spy, and so they picked him up and they never. she never heard from him after that. She and her two children were eventually allowed to immigrate to Haifa, Israel. I saw them there again after I'd seen them in Russia. What we're going through now, Baha'u'llah said the old world order will be rolled up and a new one spread out in its stead. And the new one, of course, is the kingdom of God on earth that His Holiness the Christ taught us to pray for. Well, I went from Russia. (laughs) I'm, I'm hopping all over the place because one... Story will remind me
0: of another one. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story.
1: I've enjoyed it very much.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nina Gordon, a woman who traveled all over the world to tell people about the Baha'i faith as a result of her own search for it. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.bahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, You can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: Chant Temple, we intone our dedication to become one congregation. Now the Sun of Truth has risen.